Friends, as we returned from holidays this last week, I had, as pastors always have, I had a sermon to look, prepare and look forward to. And as the summer played out with VBS being in July and everything, our holidays, which normally would happen earlier in the summer, uh, were put toward the end. And because of that, our summer series of messages seemed to finish before we went on holidays. But I came back and I was still praying about what message God wanted us to hear this week. And uh, Dorothy, as you saw our worship team up here, Dorothy, their team happened to be on. And she asked the question, what hymn are you speaking about this Sunday? <laughs> and I started to say, well, Dorothy, that, I finished that up. That's, that's done. And then I thought, well, we have Dorothy here. Let's finish the series today because there's so many wonderful uh, songs and hymns of the faith. And we've even sung some today from people like Isaac Watts, who we heard one of his hymns and looked at that earlier we're not preaching the hymns, but we're looking at the scriptural message that undergirds some of these great songs of the faith. And those that last, because every generation, God is revealing himself to them fresh and new. And in their musical vocabulary, they're putting into words the message of their heart as they bring their worship to God. But from generation to generation, those songs come and go. But some of them, it seems, stay around longer, that they have they have a message that resonates in the hearts of people. And music is a heart language, let's be honest. Not just the music, but the words that go along with it. In fact, our theme verse, as you see in Ephesians chapter 5, beginning in verse 19, we're told as Christians to speak to one another with psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. Sing and make music in your heart to the Lord. He's the only audience we have. Some of us, we, uh, we feel very self-conscious singing in public because people might hear us. They're not the intended audience. Whether we are together singing wonderfully as a, in, in a group setting or whether you're alone in worship or driving in your car, you can sing in your heart and make music to the Lord. And the song we're focusing on today comes from exactly that situation. In fact, today's message that we've uh, chosen is based on a hymn that's had a number of different names, but the name that it bears for the last uh, length of time is The Solid Rock. Hmm. The Solid Rock. There's only one. The Solid Rock, of course, in the hymn will be Jesus, and we stand upon that rock. We base our life on it. We trust it. And this song, as I said, came about during the daily course of life. We've heard about some hymns. Remember the hymn, a man wrote it on the way to class. He had to teach, and he jotted down on an envelope the hymn. We had another hymn where a man's mother was on the other side of the ocean in Ireland, and she was near death and sick, and so he wrote her a poem speaking of their common faith to give her comfort. These hymns come from all different places. This one is kind of unusual. The man who wrote this hymn this morning, The Solid Rock, his name was Edward Mote. Now, he was born a long time ago in the southern part of London in 1797, Edward Mote. Edward Mote, unlike some of our hymn writers, he wasn't, he wasn't a famous Christian. He wasn't a bishop or leader in churches, at least not until later in life. In fact, Edward Mote was born south of the River Thames. If you've ever been to London, you know that Southwark, south of the Thames, tends to be the industrial and the poor part of town. We always think of the east end of London with Jack the Ripper and the Cockney people as the poor part, 
But Southwark, even today, is the place of high-rise uh, residential homes with a lot of crime and so forth. That's the type of situation this man was born into. In fact, Edward Mote, his parents, his father and mother, ran a pub. They were pub owners. And a public house running a drinking establishment was very busy in that part of town. And so the children they had, Edward included, were left to their own devices. <clears throat> in fact, in the early 1800s, on the streets of South London, Edward Mote was the epitome of what we would call a street urchin. With no discipline, no one to oversee him, no schooling to speak of at all. Speaking of his life later, he said he was an entirely ignorant little beast. In fact, he said until later in life, he never had heard that there was such a thing as God. Can you imagine? But fortunately for him, at 18 years of age, walking down the street with nothing to do, he heard somebody singing. And the songs drew him to a meeting house where the gospel was preached, the good news of Jesus. He'd never heard such a thing. It fascinated him. It drew him in, and he was saved. He was wonderfully saved. And he then left the streets and took a profession and got a job. He was a hardworking laborer. For almost 40 years, he worked in London as a cabinet maker. And he was a faithful member of his local church. And one day, walking the streets of London on Holbrook Street, he was walking to work early in the morning as London woke up and was hustling and bustling around him. And he said as he walked, he was singing a little tune in his heart of his own device. And as he sang, he sang one refrain over and over. It came to him. It came to him. On Christ, the solid rock I stand. All other ground is sinking sand. On Christ, the solid rock I stand. All other ground is sinking sand. A London laborer on his way to work, and this stuck in his mind. Well, later, the next Sunday, he had, he, by then he had taken that refrain and written four rough stanzas to go along with it to, to unpack what it means to stand on the solid rock of Christ. After the service, the pastor, knowing that he was one of the, the steady, strong Christians in the congregation, the pastor asked him, this is in 1834, to, to come home with him because his wife was very sick at home. In fact, she was very near to death. She died soon after. And so he went home. He said he had an early tea, and he rushed over to the pastor's house. And there they visited her with her, and they prayed with her. Before they knew it, it was time to go back to church. Remember those days, evening service? And the pastor said, before we go, before I leave her, I never leave her, but I, I sing a hymn and I read a passage of scripture and I pray with her because I never know if she's going to still be with me when I come home. And he searched around for his hymn book, couldn't find it. Isn't that amazing, these type of details? He couldn't find his hymn book. Had he left it at the church house? But Edward Mote in his pocket pulled out a rumpled piece of paper, and he says, I have a hymn I've been working on. Could we sing it? And so the two of them for her sang the solid rock. And it so blessed her. 
has so blessed her and had such an impact on her that he felt bold enough to add a couple more verses and to write it out in fair hand and to anonymously send it to a local Christian paper. And they published it. And it became very popular. So popular, in fact, that when he came forward, a cabinet maker, and because and, they were asking, who wrote this hymn? And he, he said, I did. At first, they wouldn't believe him. He said, well, who are you kidding us? You're just a, a common man, no education, a laborer. How could you write this hymn? In fact, it was pretty rough. They took the six verses and made four workable verses out of it. And they're the four brief verses that we sing to this very day. On Christ the solid rock I stand. All other ground is sinking sand. And our local book, the hymn book that we use, it would be found in page 54. There it is, Edward Mote, music by William Bradbury. And you notice in this hymn, he unpacks the meaning of Christ being our solid rock. They're not going to be on the screen, but you all know the first verse. My hope is built. He's a builder. I love this. It reflects his carpentry background. My hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. I dare not trust the sweetest frame, but wholly lean on Jesus' name. Christ alone is the firm foundation of our lives. He alone is the way of salvation. Nothing else. And Edward Mote saw clearly with the clarity that many of us lack that only Jesus is their hope for a lost world. That all other ground, anywhere else you place your hope, is sinking sand. Now sinking sand, I've mentioned to the kids, especially at Kids Club, has a strong meaning to me because I've mentioned to you before that when I was about eight or nine years old, I got caught near a spring in rural Oklahoma in ground that was quicksand and I was caught and I couldn't get out fortunately it was midwinter just after Christmas and the quicksand becomes kind of leisurely at that time because it's mostly frozen so I wasn't sinking to my death too quick I was sinking and it was more danger from hypothermia until my dad heard my plaintive cries and pulled me out sinking sand not the solid rock that we all need for assurance of salvation. Well, Edward Mote, when he was 55 years old, he put down his carpentry tools and he became a pastor. A pastor at 55. Second career man. That's more common today, but not in his day. But he was so beloved by his congregation in West Sussex that, believe it or not, they offered to give him all the church property. <laughs> and he told them, I don't want the chapel. I just want the pulpit. And if I fail to preach the gospel, you can even take that away. For the last 26 years of his life, he faithfully preached the good news that Jesus is the solid rock. Well, very briefly before we go to the communion table, what are some of the areas of sinking sand? I was reading in the book of Jeremiah this week, and it makes it so clear that it is the utmost foolishness in life to put your trust in man, in us, in one another. Trust in God, not man. We know that trust comes to us through putting our trust in God's Son, Jesus.
But the areas of man, trusting man, well, I, I trust people all the time for various things. But not for my salvation. Not for the ultimate truth and meaning of life. We can break the trust of man down into a number of areas. We'll look at those very quickly. The sinking sand of human goodness. If you are living your life, putting your trust in the goodness of your fellow man, you're to be pitied above all people. Because the scripture reveals eventually the arm of man, the arm of flesh will fail you. You put your trust in mankind, you will always be ultimately disappointed. We can do some things for one another, but we can't take care of the greatest problem of all, the heart problem, problem of a sinful heart. The sinking sand of human goodness. Jeremiah, as I mentioned, he says, the heart is deceitful above all things and beyond cure. Who can understand it? For it's the heart that goes on and says that God examines the heart and the mind of mankind. You say, well, there's good people. Yeah, compared to one another, we do look better in comparison with one another than when we compare ourselves to God himself. But remember, holiness and goodness, God is the standard. We set a very low bar for ourselves when we compare ourselves with one another. Before you accept the good news, you need to hear and accept the hard-to-hear bad news that we're sinners. We're sick in need of a doctor. We're sinners in need of a Savior. Romans 3 puts it so clearly beginning in verse 9. The Apostle Paul is writing to the church in Rome, a church he's never been to that he hopes to visit. He knows it's made up of Jewish believers and Gentile believers. And he talks to them that all of them, whether religious Jews or lost pagan Gentiles, they're all sinners in need of Jesus. He says, what shall we conclude then? He's speaking as a Jew. Are we any better? Not at all. We've already made the charge that Jews and Gentiles alike are all under sin. As it is written, there is no one righteous. Not even one. There is no one who understands. No one who seeks God. All have turned away. They have together become worthless. There is no one who does good. That seems pretty pretty pessimistic as regard to human nature. But it's true. We need to hear the hard news to hear about ourselves. That we cannot be in the presence of holy God through our own good works through our own good deeds. You know the scriptures, especially in the book of Romans, that the, the righteousness of man is like filthy rags compared to God's holy sight. The sinking sand of human goodness. Well, we often dress it up and we organize it and we get together in buildings and build as beautiful buildings as we can and try to practice our good works to work our way to God. That's the sinking sand of human religion. As a pastor, I'll be honest with you, I'm one of the most irreligious people you'll meet. I love God. I love a relationship with Him. I love spirituality. But the sinking sand of human religion won't save us because it's human in origin. It's a human attempt to reach a God who's unreachable through our efforts. 
Now, the religion, I'm talking about world religions, even the great Abrahamic religions of Christianity and Judaism and even its offshoot Islam, none of them practices religions alone can see you in God's presence. They won't save. And a religion, even how the world interprets Christianity, much of Christianity becomes a religion, just as Judaism was a codified religion in Jesus' day. And the religious leaders were his greatest enemies. And his greatest criticism was for the practice of that religion. And this is a religion that was revealed and begun by God at Mount Sinai in the giving of the Ten Commandments. But remember, after the Ten Commandments, the, the religious leaders, they made up 600 more that you had to keep. Their traditions obscured are completely obliterated God's truth behind it. And over the years, so much of what's taken place in 2,000 years in the name of Christ is nothing but human tradition that is obscured or even obliterated the good news of the gospel. We have drained the cross of its power when it becomes a set of rules that we can follow. Jesus didn't give us these rules in such a way. What did he say? Love God with all your heart and love your neighbor as itself. All the law and prophets hang on those two things. Jesus looked at a relationship of the heart rather than a religion you can accomplish with your hands. Even something like prayer. And Jesus had his criticism for the religious around him in Matthew chapter 6 when they were asking him why his prayer is so significantly different than the prayers of others. One of the things he said is, and when you pray, do not keep on babbling like pagans, for they think they will be heard because of their many words. He says just praying doesn't do it. You need to come to God the Father through Jesus. He, in his flesh on the cross, opened the way to God, to the Holy of Holies. And it was symbolized, remember, by the tearing of the veil in the temple. No, Jesus was hard on religion. When he spoke to those most religious people in his experience, in Matthew chapter 15, we see him speaking to them. Jesus, talking about their practice of religion, says this, Thus you nullify the word of God for the sake of your tradition. You hypocrites. Isaiah was right when he prophesied about you. These people honor me with their lips but their hearts are far from me. They worship me in vain. Their teachings are but rules taught by men. When you add anything to the Word of God, whether it be the traditions of the Holy Church, whether it be the Pearl of Great Price or the Book of Mormon or the Koran or anything, you go beyond God's truth. You get away from the good news of the gospel. You leave the solid rock and you step out on sinking sand. Religion, well-intended, well-meaning, but entirely human strength can never, can never storm the gates of heaven. We come as sinners forgiven through the sacrifice of Jesus on the cross alone. For it's by grace you've been saved through faith. And this not of yourself, it's all of faith, not of works, so that no one can boast.
Some people have given up on goodness, given up on religion. They trust their own wisdom. The wisdom of man distilled in today's modern worship of, at the altar of science. Scientists, doctors, experts are the high priests of our secular society. The sinking sand of human wisdom. I have a series of books in my office. They're called The Great Books of the Western World. And it goes all the way back to the philosophers of the ancient world. And you read them and you see how man's wisdom attempts to, to understand himself and the world around him have grown over the years. And yet, we've always fallen short. We couldn't reach God through our own wisdom. We couldn't reason or think our way to heaven. But God revealed himself to us. He revealed himself fully to us when he sent his son into this world. The creator became part of creation. And we met him first in a manger in Bethlehem. And our response to him and his love for us was to nail him to a cross. But God's goodness conquered mankind's sin. And through the resurrection of Jesus, we're alive. A criminal on a cross? In the ancient world, to trust in him to save you would be the height of foolishness. And so the early Christians preaching the cross was a scandal. Who do they think they are? It was offensive. It's like us putting a, a guillotine on our church or an electric chair, a form of execution. This was the worst form of execution, and that was the hope of the world as Christians preached it. Jesus, death for us on the cross and his resurrection. The sinking sand of human wisdom. We weren't thought highly of in the ancient world. In the time of the Emperor Marcus Aurelius in the second century, one of the great philosophers, Celsus, writing about these troublesome Christians, he wrote this. In his book on true doctrine, Celsus wrote, Christians are wool workers, cobblers, laundry workers, and the most illiterate and bucolic yokels who could not dare say anything at all in front of their elders and more intelligent masters. They look down on us, a bunch of hillbillies, a bunch of know-nothing yokels. And we were willing to wear it because we see that truth reflected for us in Scripture as well. What's the Apostle Paul say about the cross and the foolishness of preaching the cross in 1 Corinthians chapter 1? He says, For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, the intelligence of the intelligent, I will frustrate. Where is the wise man? Where is the scholar? Where is the philosopher of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world through its wisdom did not know him, God was pleased through the foolishness of what was preached to save those who believe. You see, in the foolishness of the cross, the wisdom of God revealed. A helpless mankind, our sins were laid upon the sinless one, and he, in love for us, paid the price, shedding his blood for us.
a lamb that was perfect, without blemish. So we conclude as we come to the communion table with a focus squarely on Jesus. Not human religion, not the works of man, not the innate goodness of mankind, not the wisdom of the wisest people in the world, but on Jesus. Jesus himself. He is the rock upon which we stand. He is the one foundation that you can stand on. As Paul says again in Corinthians, for no one can lay any foundation other than that one already laid, which is Jesus Christ. There's only one. There's not many ways to heaven. All religions are not equal. Jesus claimed to be the way, the truth, and the life. In Acts chapter 4, it's put so clearly, beginning in verse 11. As Peter and John stood before the religious leaders of their days, they quoted scripture and said to them this. Of Jesus, they said, He is the stone you builders rejected, which has become the capstone. Salvation is found in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given to men by which we must be saved. Friends, with that message resonating in our hearts. I'm going to call upon the worship team to lead us in that wonderful old hymn written by the son of a pub owner, a common itinerant cabinet maker, but a hymn that still rings in churches around the world today. As they come forward, we'll stand together and sing the solid rock and then go to the communion table. I see you're following instructions and standing, so <laughs> we're gonna sing two in the chorus and two in the chorus, just so you're aware. My hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. I dare not trust the sweetest frame, but wholly lean on Jesus' name. When darkness fades to hide His face, I rest on His unchanging grace. In every high and stormy gale, my anchor holds within the Faultless to stand before the
table. He's the host. It's the Lord's Supper. You are invited. The Apostle Paul, in writing a corrective passage to the Corinthian church, for in those days, the Lord's Supper was often remembered or taken part in as part of a larger meal. They called it the love feast. It was more akin to what we would call a potluck supper, but it seemed in this case they weren't sharing from their pots with one another, that those who had lots and brought lots went home full and the poor went home hungry. The Apostle Paul says, this doesn't speak well of the unity we have in Christ. And so he said for them to focus on the cup and the bread, not to do anything in an unworthy manner. He says in this, for I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you, the Lord Jesus. On the night he was betrayed, he took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this. In remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death till he comes. I'll call upon Ken to give thanks for the bread, which reminds us of the body of Jesus given for us. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we are indeed thankful to you for your love for us. We think of your Son, Jesus, and his willingness to come and to act on our behalf and to take the punishment which was due us. And so we just say this morning, thank you. Thank you for your love. Thank you for your Son, Jesus, and his willingness to come. For this bread, which symbolizes his body, we do give you thanks. And we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.
we read that Jesus took the bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. At this time, I'll call upon Kevin to give thanks for the cup which recalls to our minds the blood of Jesus shed for us. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your love and your mercy on us. Father, thank you that your son willingly died on the cross. Father, thank you for his blood that covers our sin and washes us white. Father, thank you for the symbol, for the cup that represents that blood. And Father, for the way that it gives us salvation and uh, gives us access to you. So, Father, we thank you for that this morning, and we thank you for Jesus. In your name, amen. In the same way, after supper, Jesus took the cup, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. Amen. Friends, stand with me as we're dismissed from this place of worship to our places of ministry with a word of prayer. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your Son, Jesus, the Lamb of God, who takes away the sins of the world. For Lord, we realize that it was not with silver or gold or perishable things that we were redeemed from our empty ways of life, but with the precious blood of Christ. Thank you, Lord, for Jesus, the solid rock. In him we put our hope, and we know that those who put their hope in him will never be disappointed. 
And now, Father, dismiss us to be a blessing to the world around us. This is always our prayer. Bless us that we may be a blessing to others. We pray all of this in Christ's precious name. Amen.